Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Virginia Lee, Associate Editor. On this week's pod, takeaways from BioCentury's interview with FDA's Amy Abernathy and what it will take to meet CEPI's 100-day vaccine goal for the next pandemic. In this week's Deal in Focus, Epimab attracts a pair of top crossover investors to its pre-mezzanine round, not long after adding a new CFO. But first, the BioCentury team is prepping for our 21st BioEquity Europe conference, which will be an all-digital event scheduled for May 17th to 19th. BioEquity's Partnering One platform opens next Monday, April 5th. Register now so you are ready Monday to start scheduling your one-on-one virtual meetings with 120 and counting presenting companies selected by the BioCentury team. For more information, please visit bioequityeurope.com. Amy Abernathy, when she joined FDA as Principal Deputy Commissioner, she told us there were two things that were super obvious that she needed to tackle. The first was a wave of applications, including for cell and gene therapies to treat rare diseases that threatened to overwhelm FDA's reviewers. It was equally clear to her that the agency couldn't hire its way out of the problem. Virginia, tell us a bit about key takeaways Amy Abernathy told us last week. Like you said, when she joined the agency in 2019, she was facing these two big challenges. In addition to stepping in as principal deputy commissioner, she also took on the role of acting chief information officer and really led the way to modernizing technology and data practices at the FDA that would help address this rising workload that was coming. One example of that was by transforming static safety reports into searchable data formats. Previously, IND sponsors were submitting safety reports to the agency as PDFs, which FDA reviewers would have to search through by hand. She led an initiative that enabled sponsors to submit these safety reports as structured data sets that the agency could search and analyze and visualize much more quickly. It was one way of freeing up reviewers to really focus on tasks that couldn't be automated. Another thing she brought with her was the focus on real-world data. She was really brought in to help integrate real-world data into regulatory decision-making by the FDA. Prior to joining, she was CMO, CSO, and SVP for oncology at Flatiron. And during the pandemic, real-world data really went from being a nice-to-have to to a need-to-have in order to develop pandemic countermeasures more quickly. She played a big part in helping forge collaborations among regulators, among academic and industry researchers, to launch the COVID-19 Accelerator and Diagnostics Accelerator to collect that real-world data on COVID. Now, we don't know right where Amy Abernethy is going in her post-FDA existence, Virginia. Right. She hasn't said yet. But she did say that she'll be advancing what she's done on real-world data. What's interesting is the number of former FDA officials who are putting weight behind real-world data and obviously better clinical trial networks. We saw that former FDA Commissioner Mark McClellan is at Duke Margolis. Rob Califf, also former FDA Commissioner, 
the two of them are putting a lot of energy into improving clinical trial networks. And part of the thing that they have talked about, in particular McClellan and also Abernethy in the past, is the need for interoperability, the need for the different data systems coming out to actually be able to talk to each other. It seems that what she did that you talked about inside FDA are really just pretty much first steps towards bringing data on. There seem to be really big issues still to solve. I think a a big part of that was just getting different organizations to talk to one another, have those initial conversations about how real-world data is collected, what are the different features of different data sets that need to be standardized so that they can be analyzed. And only from there can we get to a point where we're talking about what kinds of decisions these data can reliably support. One of the things that's just become more and more evident during the pandemic, we've had data rolling out of clinical trials all over the world with a need to analyze it really fast. Speaking of fast, let's turn to CEPI. The Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations is not waiting for this pandemic to be over before it starts preparing for the next one. Sobering words, the next pandemic. I've quite had enough with this one. CEPI launched a plan earlier this month to raise $3.5 billion to reach a 100-day goal to develop a vaccine. Now, let's look back to last year. For COVID-19, vaccine development took an incredible 314 days from the release of the virus's genetic sequence on January 10th, 2020, to the first submission of phase three data on a COVID-19 vaccine for regulatory review. Simone, what's the plan to improve on that? Thanks, Jeff. Well, I want to say a couple of things. You may have had enough of this pandemic. Many of us have. Not a single person that I have spoken to, experts in the field in the last six, nine, 12 months, no one thinks this is the last pandemic. So the question is, when is the next one? And how much can we prepare? It's a race against time. So what CEPI has is a five-year plan. I think that means that what they want to do is reach this 100-day goal in that time frame. And you called it an incredible 314 days, which is incredible from the point of view of it was so fast. CEPI wants to reduce that to less than a third with 100 days. I think what's really important to understand is this is not actually just a question of removing inefficiencies. There's a little bit of that which I can get into, but this is actually going to take technologies and inventions that don't currently exist. That's the view of Matai Mammon, who is the head of R&D at J&J's Janssen. And there are a lot of good seeds that are in there. I think there are probably four things that I would like to highlight. Matai's main point is actually vaccinology is way stuck behind. So immunology, in particular immuno-oncology, they are harnessing all kinds of parts of the immune system. And his position is vaccine people, they really focus on neutralizing antibodies and CD8 plus T cells. But actually, there's loads of T cells and there's other kinds of antibodies, and they really need to broaden the view of how vaccines can harness the immune system to reach their goal. He pointed to various assays that actually exist that are currently being used a lot and 
said there are other areas like metabolomics and proteomics that are going to come online in the next few years. So he's optimistic that it'll look different. But scientifically, he says there's a jump. He and Seppi and Rajiv Venkaya, who is the head of vaccine manufacturing at Takeda, but is also a board member at Seppi, everybody seems to agree that mRNA is a great starting point. mRNA is a great platform. I think we've spoken before in this podcast, and you will hear a lot more about self-amplifying mRNA, which is another type of mRNA. But there's a lot of reasons why people are so excited about this as a platform for vaccines. And a large part of that is because of its advantage in manufacturing as a chemistry-based rather than a biology-based approach. It makes it much more plug and play. So Simone, I uh, was checking out the cool graphic we have in our story on biocentry.com and it has step one, vaccine design, step two, preclinical, step three, manufacturing, and it says Coca-Cola machines. What in the Sam Hill does delicious Coca-Cola have to do with developing a vaccine? All right. I have to confess something now. When I was speaking to Rajiv, he said to me, do you drink Coca-Cola? And I don't know if I should be embarrassed or not, but the answer was not for 25 years. So I'm not That's an expert. That's the right answer. That's yeah. the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Coca. So, but my son informs me that everybody knows what Coca-Cola machines are. So I'm clearly not a big expert on this, but the way I understand it is Coca-Cola machines exist that have, let's say, 200 or 500 flavors, and you can dial in whatever you want and get a bespoke Coca-Cola for yourself, a tailored one. The same idea is what Rajiv wants for manufacturing, where you could dial in the modality of your vaccine. You could dial in the sequence if it's an mRNA one and the various other parameters. And effectively, you can have a sort of plug and play. And the vision is that you have pre-optimized manufacturing. The idea is that you don't spend a lot of time on optimizing manufacturing during the pandemic. You've got a range of conditions that people have been working on in the interim. This is part of the job that they have to do. One thing I just wanted to add that is really important about this is that it's global, is that these machines should exist all over the world. As we know, CEPI is very involved in enabling equitable access. I think it's really interesting is they have a goal to have a single global label. That's cool. Virginia, I know you edited this story. What's it going to take to get a single global label? Yeah, so this is this is the hard part, is bringing all the regulators to the table to agree to a common protocol for different regions that would also speed up the timeline for development. It's hard to do that part. I get that because it's dealing with humans, not science. And ooh, we all know how those human beings can be. All right, let's turn to... The deal in focus this week, last week, Shanghai-based biotech Epimab raised $120 million in a Series C round. The new CFO, David Gu, told me is actually a pre-IPO round. Now, what caught my eye with this deal is the list of investors. The round was led by China Merchants Bank International in Marai. The latter is considered Japan's top investor in China, 
Also in the round is Cormoran, led by Bihua Chen. Now, I caught up with Silicon Valley Bank's John Norris last week. He tracks performance of crossover investors and said of the top 15 he follows closely, Cormorant is right at the top of that group. I spoke with Chen last week, and I really didn't know much about her firm other than they seem to be in nearly every crossover round for biotechs with blue chip investors. One thing that, I don't know if it surprised me, but what she said is she invests for the long term. She rattled off a list of five or six companies that she's been in for eight to 10 years. So I think that speaks very well of Epimab to have a deep pocketed investor that they can count on being around for the long haul. Jeff, you said this is a pre-IPO round. So where exactly is Epimab looking to pursue their eventual IPO? Are they leaning one way or another? That's a good question. The CFO told me, obviously, any IPO is contingent upon raising its next venture round, which they hope to do either in the back half of this year or the front half of next year. As you know, it's hard to get an answer to that question, Virginia. I know you've asked dozens and dozens of companies, and they always play it a little bit coy. What we do know, though, is sort of as a rule of thumb, when a Chinese biotech hires a CFO from New York, now David was at McKinsey, he was at another East Coast shop called Millennium, and he was also at Jeffrey's. This can signal that a NASDAQ IPO is in the company's future. But he did say that Epimab is keeping its options open in terms of where and how it will go public. That could include a SPAC, he said. And interestingly, Cormorant has its own SPAC. But as you know, Virginia, companies right now with one foot in the U.S., with China roots, they are getting slightly better valuations in Hong Kong right now. Yeah, it seems like their investor base is pretty familiar with both the Hong Kong and NASDAQ exchanges. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. And and there is another notable firm in the round, Ting Jia's Octagon Capital, which has been pretty quiet, but I think one to watch as Jia comes from Hill House. We'll see what else is coming out of there. Yeah, TJ was Hill House's man in New York. I would imagine they have fairly deep pockets as well. Now, they're being fairly tight-lipped about their pipeline. They do have three cancer programs, all in early clinical testing. Their lead, EMB01, is in phase one, two testing for lung cancer in China and the U.S., And that compound simultaneously targets EGFR and CMET on tumor cells. And they have two other disclosed compounds. One targets a couple of checkpoint proteins, and the other is a T-cell engaging bispecific. That's designed to target CD3 and BCMA. So obviously some interesting targets, running trials in Australia, China, and the U.S., They clearly do have their sights set on becoming a global company. Jeff, going back to this idea of this being a a pre-IPO round, I think it's interesting that there are so many crossover investors this early in the game. And I'm wondering if that's something you're seeing more of, crossover investors coming in even before an IPO is on the immediate horizon. 
That's a great question, Virginia. David, the CFO, did tell me that these investors, obviously they, they came into this with open eyes. They knew there was another round coming. And I think there's just so much money being raised by VC firms and crossover investors. There's just a lot of competition to get into these deals. So we are seeing companies like Cormorant go earlier. Bihua told me that she's always gone earlier. So she didn't really say that that was a factor right now. But I think if you look across the board, we're seeing these crossovers getting in earlier so that they can have a seat at the table when the IPO eventually comes along. That's all we have time for this week. Virginia, Simone, thanks for joining me. Looking ahead for what's coming up on biocentury.com this week, senior editor Lauren Martz is digging into China's CAR-T landscape. The first two CAR-T programs from Chinese companies are up for regulatory approval this year, but Lauren tells me it's going to be the next generation platforms the same companies are quietly building right now that will make the game-changing modality accessible on the price-sensitive Chinese market. And we'll have more on Cormorant. As I mentioned, I spoke to Bihua Chen about her investment strategy. So hopefully I'll carve out a little time to write that this week. We'll have the next in our Korea Spotlight series that will focus on James Lee's bridge. And we'll have our usual features such as emerging company profiles, our daily data bite, and much more. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.